Thank you so much for tuning in to Northridge Church Podcast. We're so glad to have you a part of our weekly service. For more information, please visit us online at northridgethomaston.com. Now prepare your hearts as we dive into God's Word. We talked about being poured into and then being filled so that you may pour out upon others. And the reality is there comes a point in my spiritual life where I desire more than just that sincere milk. I want the meat of the Word. That there's a point where we grow up. Let me read this to you and you'll kind of understand where I'm going. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me put this in context. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church at Corinth who, in my opinion, just on studying, that they have really kind of lost a few things that were very important on how to do their faith, on how to do church, on how to take care of people. So he wrote them 1 Corinthians, the first letter that he wrote. They didn't really get it, so he ended up writing them a second letter called 2 Corinthians. A little bit more urgent. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14, if you ever read those, you really need to read those in that arrangement. You need to read 12 in its entirety, 13, and then 14 to understand the full thought by which Paul was writing. In 12, we see the diversity of the gifts that the Bible says the Holy Spirit gives us according as He wills. He gets to determine who can do the different things that he would have them to do. And if everybody did the same thing, we would be a boring people. It would be a boring existence. If everybody could sing, then everybody would be up here on the stage and no one would be out there being fed because they couldn't sing. Such are being fed in that capacity. And on and on, whether it be discernment. Whether any teaching gift, any gift that God has given, he speaks of that in chapter 12 where he talks about its diversity. But watch this. He speaks about a unity in that diversity. It almost seems oxymoronic, but the reality is it's not. That because of our diversity, we can be great together. Everybody say we're better together. And so that's what chapter 12. And then the last verse of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he says this. Yet I show unto you a more excellent way. And then, in chapter 13, he speaks of the supremacy of love to all the other gifts. He speaks of love in all of these verses that love is is not boastful. Love does not envy. It does not covet. It does not keep score. And he goes through all of these verses for 10 verses. And then we pick up in our text. Matter of fact, I'm going to start in verse 8 where he says, Love never fails. Aren't you glad that the love of God has never failed you before? The reality is, he says, but whether there be prophecies, guess what? They will fail. Whether there be tongues, they will cease. Why is he just concentrating on prophecy and tongues? It's because if you read chapter 14, he then opens up the issues of prophecy so that we speak the word of God over people would actually be more important than tongues, the gift of tongues. Why? Because it profits all. The goal of that would be to profit everyone, that the church would be glorified. And that people would be lifted up and encouraged. So that's why he's dealing with these in chapter 13. Listen to what he says. Love never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, guess what? They will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and therefore we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come. Now I want to get into a huge, huge theological debate with you. But I do want to tell you what I believe that means based on a lot of years of study, many will tell you that that which is perfect has come is speaking of Jesus and is speaking of his second coming. It cannot mean that because if you look into the Greek language there, it is not in a masculine gender, which would always be the case in which Jesus would be spoken about. It would be in a neuter gender, 
which would mean and only mean one thing, that it could be speaking about the Word of God. When the Word of God in its totality has come, then that which is done in part shall be done away. you got to remember, all the gifts were given as a sign because the Jews required a sign. Remember, the Bible is written uh, about Jews for Jews, and Jesus was a Jew. The whole process, you got to understand Hebrew culture to understand the Word of God. But then Romans said we were grafted into that promise that Abraham gave of land, seed, and blessing. So the reality, he says, there's something that's perfect, that's entire, that's complete. Now we have the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 in the New, 66 books of the entirety of God's Word. There's no new revelation. Now we read the Word of God and we see the illumination by the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's a lamp into our feet, a light into our path, so that we now can see it for what it was meant to be. Remember, I've said that to you many, many times. And so when he says that, when that which is perfect has come, he's talking about the, the, the fullness of the word of God in which we have today. And then watch what he says. Then that which is done in part, prophesying, tongues, knowledge, those things will be done away. Now here's our text. Underscore this if you're a note taker in verse 11. He says, Paul is speaking, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. There's an inference there that he also did things as a child. He says, I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But now when I become a man, I've put away childish things. That's our text. Let me read that again. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought the way a child thinks. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Let me read 12 and 13, then we're done. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And now abides faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, y'all say it with me, is love. Let's pray together. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for your word today that you hold above your name. Help me to rightly divide it in truth, with power, with life-changing application, and we give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said amen. Just a little couple of rules around here in the house. If you say amen, I knock off two minutes of the sermon. Amen? There you go. I want to bring you a message today that I have called, it's time to grow up. Look to your neighbor and say, time for you to grow up. Now that doesn't preach well, right? Because it's almost like I'm, it's condescending. You need to grow up. That's not something that we hear in church. It's something we hear from mom and dad, right? It's time for you to grow up and take responsibility for your actions. But I want to be today a voice of reason to tell you from this stage that it is time the church. Matter of fact, I can say it this way down here where we live. It's high time. How many of y'all know what high time means? It means it's past the moment. It's high time that we as a church, we as a body of believers, we as a child of the Most High God, it's time we grow up. It's time to put away childish things. So I'm going to kind of identify a few things that God has laid in my heart today. In order to grow up, we're talking spiritually now, growing up spiritually, that there are a few things that I believe that we need to put away, that we're going to call childish things in order that we grow up spiritually and be all that God has called us to be. Number one, if you're taking notes, I think it's time we put away judgment and condemnation, don't you? I think it's time that we not be so judgmental. If you look into uh, Barna Group, they did a series of different questions that were sent out to the millennials, age 18 to probably 31-ish. And we're finding that 82% of high school graduates who were raised in church have left the church never to return to it. And we have to identify that there's an issue. We have to. We have to ask ourselves, why is the church becoming irrelevant when we serve a God who is timeless? 
Why is it that the, that the word of God that we raise up above his own name, he says, why is it that it's no longer the book that we seek after, that we pursue, that we, instead of preaching the word, instead of quoting the scriptures, we, we'd have these little nuances now, these little one-liners, these little sermonettes, if you will. Why is it that millennials have found the church to be the least relevant thing in their culture today? And Barna came back with this. The number one on the top of the list is millennials believe that the church is the most judgmental place that they can go. In fact, I have seen this with my own eyes. People who may walk into a building and somehow, some way, we get to this mindset. And a lot of it is tradition. Nothing wrong with tradition. I think it's important. I think it's essential that we remember where we've come from. How many of you understand what I mean? We need to remember and reflect upon those who have paved the way for us. But when we park on tradition rather than absolute doctrine, truth, then we have erred from the faith. That when our doctrine becomes dogma, and that dogma becomes judgmental personalities in the church, then we push people away rather than bring them in. That if a young man walks into a church house and they look at him and say, hey, you need to remove that hat from your head. Where did that come from? Because in the Old Testament days, in fact, they would have put a hat on when they went into the presence of God. Or maybe somebody comes in and, and they have holes in their jeans or something like that. Or Lord forbid, wear skinny jeans. The point I'm getting at is when you come into the house. And somebody says, wait, you can't dress like that. You need to wear your best. The Bible says, and they always throw that out. The Bible says that you need to come in your best. It doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. In fact, the Bible says, contrary to that, that you need to come as you are. The reality is, coming as we are sometimes doesn't look like we think it ought to look. I made a statement one time, and I've kind of parked on this throughout my ministry, is that we want people, and I'm talking we corporate church. I'm not talking about Northridge, because I promise you, our philosophy here, and I'll share it with you in a minute, is all, almost a dichotomy the way the church is corporately today. But we want co- corporate church, wants you to come to our church, so we will build it, and then you come. But bless God, when you come, you need to look like we do, you need to act like we do, you need to be the color we are, you need to smell like we do, you need to worship like we do, or else you're not welcome. That's what the church has done according to the people who've been asked. They said they don't feel today that they can go into the church as they are. Let me tell you something. Spiritually speaking, this is a hospital for the broken. Come in broken. Come in undone. Come in unfixed. Or else what's the point of what we're doing? See, Jesus spoke in James 1.27. He says, pure religion, undefiled before God, is when you and I take care of the widows and the orphans. Listen, if we're not that people that's taking the gospel to the highways and the byways, listen, what happens on Sunday is merely one point of what we do all week long. We have a Bible study on Wednesday. Now, you'll never hear me, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to. Listen, I just believe that Christians who love Jesus and people who would want to get fed, guess what? I believe they're going to pursue after those things. They're going to come to those things. It's not my job to police up your faith. I got my own issues to deal with. Can I get an amen? Listen, we got our own issues, we got our own challenges. And the reality is, is when we are judgmental, and, and, and rather than me even speak, to what sin this may be. But listen, you cannot just make a sin you vehemently disagree with. You can't make that sin taboo. And over here on the other side, you're gossiping about a brother or sister. You can't just identify a sin and go, oh, but that sin, you can't do that. Let me tell you something. 
And I, and I speak to the online campus. And I say this, I'm going to qualify it. Because if you take a soundbite of this and play it, it's going to sound really terrible. I do not care what you're involved in. I don't care. Listen, I've had people say, I left the club at 4.30 and drove all the way to get here. Bless God, come in here. Smelling like alcohol or smelling like the world. Listen, he didn't come to set the righteous friends. Why, my friend, would we need to going in a direction away from God and sh- that is about brokenness? It's pointless. Don't forget where you were when Jesus walked into your world. That's the one thing that reminds me of his grace is I remember where I was. Matthew 7 and 5 says this, hypocrite. <laughs> Pretty strong. First, get rid of the plank in your eye. I don't have a plank around here. We're going to go for it. He says, get rid of the plank in your eye before you start concerning yourself with a speck. Actually, that translation is sawdust. Anybody ever worked around a mill or ever done any construction work? I don't know what it is, but you can get a person with spiritually in your life, brother. I see it. It's real tiny, but you I'm probably the only preacher in the world that will use those point. It's silly as sentence where we're going, hey, you got this imperfectly messed up. See, that's what the that's what the Pharisees do. And whitewashed and clean permeates outside of your judgmental way. But see, for me as a Christian, I would look at it and go, God, first get rid of the plank in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with it. Now, verse 28. We shared last week in the Well, that's a noble thought. Just a doggone minute, Mark. You're saying, trying to fix all their problems? I'm saying that exactly. I've shared with you how Rush started. Went by and I said, very flippantly, I said, hey, it just so happened. I think we've often done that, haven't we? Through judgment and condemnation, God's sovereignty. Well, you knew me when I sat out in place. You know me if I go into the grave. Try me. See if there's anything wrong in my heart. I mean, then come back and say, search me, because here's why. I believe that God knows every intimate facet of our life versus what happened in 22 and 23, where he says, give you access into it so that you... Secondly, generation ever known in the world. If you are a baby boomer's child, they knew how to work. Not afraid to labor. They were not afraid to... I saw that same unfold in our life where I was working to make it. It's our fault. It's not your fault. I don't want to do anything, much less anything, encourage people to come in when in fact, what God's done in my life. Guess what's happening? Then we're tearing it down. I to you that everything in life has. And then slowly you see a growth. Those can be very short-lived. That's why it's interesting that we begin to grow. And at some point, we were born again. As a child of the Most High God, we were born again. And then the line never stops. We live eternally. But see, the reality is, is your spiritual life, believe it or not, can follow that same rule. I got born again. There's growth. And then at some point, I don't even know where this came from. I just got burnt out. You know, I'm, just, I'm doing too much. Doing too much for the Lord. I, man, I, church calls me all the time. Mark calls, I just like dismiss. You always want something. And if you're thinking that right now, shame on you. But the reality is, is we shouldn't get burned out. That's not a word that would be found in the, in, in, in the economy of being a child of God. I've said this to you many, many times, and I, and I, hope, it, I hope you receive it. When I fall on my face before my Creator, my Redeemer, 
I want to have been completely exhausted of every ounce of energy and resource that he ever gave me. I don't want to stand before him and go, Woo, we did it, didn't we? That was awesome. Got all this energy, got all this power. Oh, yeah, I had like 30 grand in the bank, man. He's like, yeah, but what about the ones you could have fed? Hey, what about the ones you could have reached? Guys, there's no retirement age to being a Christian. In laziness, he says in Proverbs 18 and 9, listen to this, a lazy person is as bad as someone who's destroying things. goes back to my statement a moment ago. If you're not building something, you might as well be tearing it down. If you're not a part of the solution, guess what you're part of? You're part of the problem. Listen to what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 10. For even when we were with you, Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, he says, we command you this. If you will not work, if a man will not work, he ought not to even eat. Well, try to preach that politically. However, I am not suggesting that someone who's falling on bad times, we should just look at, well, if you don't work, you know, listen, it's so easy. It's so easy for us to pass by someone who stands. I saw it the other day in LaGrange, somebody standing at Home Depot, and his sign said, I have been laid off. I will work for food. Now, you know and I know, here's what we do. We discount it, don't we? Let me go back to point one. We need to put away judgment and condemnation. You've not walked in their shoes. You don't know. Not yet you don't. If you really want to discern it, go talk to them. To which I did. I went up and talked to this guy, and I said, hey, man, tell me your story. Immediately you can see his nervousness. Why? I bet a thousand people have passed by him and said, you know what? If I give this guy money, he's going to go and get dope with it. But see, God did not call me. He didn't call me. I can't speak for you. He did not call me to discern the steps of that man. I was in Atlanta. I was a, I was a foreman on a father. So I had to come home and step all the jobs that I could get. But finally, we, the money that God knew that I needed to do was be faithful to what God was nudging. Stephanie and I, we were speaking at a, in somewhere in North Atlanta a few years back, and the people bought me Air Jordans, tennis shoes. Y'all know what Air Jordan is? Y'all know they're not cheap? I got some Air Jordans. They were, they were probably $250 shoes. I'm not even kidding. And, man, they were good looking. And we're coming back home from the conference. It's messy. It's raining. And I pulled in there in Jonesboro, right there on Terra Boulevard. I pulled in right there to get some fuel. And there's this guy who is being cussed out by the owner of the gas station. And he's basically, get off the property. And he's, he's, he's speaking another language, too. I think, I think he was cussing another language. I, I really believe he was. And, and the guy's, ah, he's fussing back at him. And he walks just to the edge of the property. I mean, like, if, if the property line's right here, he's, like, stepped over and go. And so I made contact with him. Stephanie's sitting in the vehicle, and I made contact with him, and he's just like snarling at me. And Stephanie kind of got your gun, right? Oh, yeah. I'm a pistol-packing preacher, baby. You know that's right. I got swords. I got everything. Billy sticks, nunchucks. Y'all think I'm kidding. And so I'm sitting there. And the Lord tells me to speak to him, and I didn't. 
So I get back in the truck, and I start to ease out of the parking lot, and man, God just, oh man, it was heavy. He says, I told you, that's what it sounded like, Barry White, I told you to speak to him. Yes, Lord. So I pulled out of the parking lot and turned back in at 70. He goes, oh, Lord. So I pulled up right next to him. He's already kind of getting all, you know, like, what was this guy going to do? I would imagine he's been pushed aside many, many times. He, he looked rough, y'all. I'm not even kidding. It was as cold as it is today, damp and rainy. And I got out. I don't know why I was getting out. I knew I had some money in my pocket. And, and so the Lord, he does this to me all the time. I kid you not. And I just want to be obedient. That's all, that's all I'll say to it. So, so I get out. He goes, what? What you want? I said, look, man, I'm, just, I'm a preacher. And uh, I, I, just, I just want to pray for you. Why you want to pray for me, man? I don't need your help. Hey, I get it, dude. I can't help you. But, man, the Lord sees you. And I want you to know that, that God sees you out here. And he's prompted me. Minding my own business to pray with you. All right. So I put my hands on his shoulders. And to, to tell you that he smelt like the world is the understatement. His head was totally nasty, matted, greasy, long hair. Clothing was just totally dilapidated. And as I went to pray, I looked down. And I saw his physical toes through both of his shoes. And I began to pray for him and I began to weep. And as I wept, he wept. When I got through, he looked me in the eyes and he said, man, thank you so much for seeing me. And he went in to hug me and he put his head right here up against my face and my shirt. And and I just embraced him, reminding me of a word Jim Cimbala said at a church in New York at the Brooklyn Tabernacle. He said something similar happened to him and he said, God turned that stench into the sweetest savor because I realized that was the dirt and the stench that Jesus died for. And I embraced that guy and I hugged him and I reached in my pocket. He said, man, I want your money. I wanted to honor him. So I wanted to give it to him anyway. He said, I'm serious. I don't want your money. What you've done for me is more than enough. Go to get back in the truck and God said, give him your shoes. And there on the back seat of my truck was a brand new pair of $250 Jordans. I said, Lord, I'm I'm not kidding. This is my personality. I'm like, Lord, I'll give them Stephanie's shoes. Those are Jordans. You you really do know that, Lord. He said, give them your shoes. It was a size 11. So as I'm turning to this guy, I asked him, I said, what size shoe do you wear? He said, 11. Did you say 12? <laughs> 11. Now I began to cry because now I knew. So I reached in there on the box and I grabbed him. And I put my hands on the shoes and I put them in his hand. He said, man, these are Jordans. I went, I know. I said, man, God wants you to have these. Now I want to give you the, I got to give you the real story. Because if I just paint a spiritual story, I'm not being honest with you. He took them. He was weeping. Stephanie was just inside smiling. She knew. No big deal. He went walking off. Man, the joker made a beeline. And in my mind, I'm thinking, he's going to hock those shoes. And God quickened my spirit. He said, Mark, I didn't ask you to police him up. I just asked you to love him. I drove away. It's all I know that ever happened. 
See, putting away laziness says, God, I'm ready to go when you say go. And I'm ready to give when you say give. And I'm ready to serve when you say serve. And I will not sit down and be idle. And then lastly, God's told me today to tell somebody it's time to put away the childish behavior of unforgiveness. It's time. Unforgiveness is blocking your spirit to connect to a holy God. One author said it this way. It's like you drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It's poison to your spirit. It's a root of bitterness, as the Hebrew writer says. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, he says that it's, it's, it's time to put away bitterness and clamor and strife and wrath that you may receive grace. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. I've burdened and labored over that verse. Are you telling me, God, that if I don't forgive her for what she did to me, you will not forgive me? You know what he told me? He says, Mark, I'm saying that when you look at what I have done for you, you will forgive. You can't not forgive when you see that I, your Father, have forgiven you and pardoned you of all your sin, you can't, grammatically incorrect, but you can't not be a forgiver. And I was looking into the hearts of you today in my prayer time. Just looking at you. Looking at you watching Maybe you're sitting there today erroneously believing that if you forgive him for what he did to you, then you got to forget it because that's what you and I have been taught. You didn't really forgive if you didn't what? Forget it. How many of y'all have ever heard that? Can I tell you something? I want to liberate you today in the word of God. You may never forget what happened. Forgiveness is saying, I choose to no longer hold it against you. Or me. Charles Spurgeon said it this way Go to the cross and learn how to forgive. Learn about forgiveness. Stay there a while and learn how to forgive others. There's no sin against me that would even remotely compare to the forgiveness He has given me. December uh, 18th. 1918, there was a young man born in South Africa named Manuel Noria, I'm sorry, Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was birthed in a period in time in a British ruled South Africa where he found himself in an apartheid, a white ran government system of segregation and extreme racism to the point of even killing the other race. This man, if you study his life, is very interesting, even if you don't agree with a lot of the semantics of his behavior, which I don't endorse everything. But he found himself in 1962 in a lifetime sentence, prison sentence. One of the places that he went was on an island where he lived in an eight-foot by seven-foot cell without a bed and without a restroom facility. He was there for 17 years. 
breaking big limestone rocks into little limestone rocks. Hard labor. All the while, never letting that infiltrate his spirit to the point of unforgiveness. That he strove towards peace. I think we have a comment that he made. I think we have that picture. He says, as I walked out 27 years in prison, he was finally released in 1990. 27 years. As I walked out the door towards the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew that if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I would still be in prison. 1993, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace. 1994, he voted for the first time and won in a Democratic nomination to be the president of South Africa. And watch this. He could have taken everything that he did and was done to him, and he could have turned it completely around. Yet he didn't change the flag. He didn't change the colors. He didn't change the football team. He didn't change anything. He said, if I do what they did to me, I'm no better than they are. I would rather offer a peaceful solution. He served but one time, one term. He died in 2013. Known worldwide as a man who was willing to forgive. Maybe even stronger than that was the story of a little girl who on June the 8th, 1972, was minding her own business in a war-struck world in Vietnam. She found herself in a temple right off of Highway 1, coming out of Trang Bain towards Saigon. She found herself hiding out in this temple thinking that the, 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 the soldiers of North Vietnamese and even the Allied soldiers, there's no way they would bomb the temple. They were told it was safe. And as she found herself in that temple, they started dropping four bombs of napalm, white phosphorus napalm. This is a jelly-like substance that when it's ignited, it sticks to everything and incinerates it. They saw the bombs getting closer to the temple, so she and her family ran out and turned and headed north towards Saigon, up Highway 1. The napalm comes across out of the west, hits the road, goes across the road, and it covers them, killing two instantly in her group and showering the left side of her body with napalm, burning her entire clothing off of her body. Extreme burns. The picture is one of the most iconic pictures of the entire war. And you see Kim Fuke right there in the center, completely nude. The men who actually were from the Associated Press, photographers, Nick Ute took this and became a Pulitzer Prize winner. And as they took a picture of this little girl, that became the image of both propaganda as well as those of us back home thinking, Surely, there's more to this war than just the soldiers. It ultimately, many believe, became the catalyst that ended the Vietnam conflict. But what's interesting about Kim is that Kim was in the hospital for 14 months after that. Nine-year-old girl. No family. She had 17 surgeries. Throughout the course of those surgeries, her pain was so intense she had to live on morphine. 
She later, while she was there, got an urgency to become a medical doctor. Went to Canada to study medicine and was later saw a picture of her studying. And the North Vietnamese saw that that was the girl in the picture, the, the napalm girl as they coined it. And they brought her back, cutting her medical and used her as a tool for the state. Coming back to Canada and, and escaped outside of the airport. And today lives as a Canadian citizen, seek, sought asylum and is now a citizen of Canada. But what I want to bring your attention to is the Kim Fuke of today. Kim Fuke today is a woman who has been forever changed, accepting Christ as the Lord of her life, became a Christian. Kim Fuke, pictured here with many of the soldiers and people who were there that day. You see, Kim Fuke went to the memorial service of the wall in Washington, D.C. and was the keynote speaker. And she got up on that podium that day and she stood there and she says, I am the victim of war. And they threw the picture up and everybody knew who she was. I'm the napalm girl. I'm the girl on the train bang highway one coming into Saigon. I'm the girl that was burned. I'm the girl. She went just categorically through the whole thing and she stepped up. She said, but many of you soldiers are carrying that around today and I want you to know I forgive you. The applause rung out over the hundreds of thousands of vets who had carried, see, not just maybe hurting her, but of the other innocent people or other things, the horrors of war that they carried with them. Liberated. She was going to get into her vehicle to leave. Many people wanting to touch Kim Fuke and just say thank you. She stepped off of the curb and went into the car. They went to shut the door, and one man hollered out. He said, Miss Kim, Miss Kim, Miss Fuke, I need, I need to see you. She couldn't even, he couldn't even be heard over all the voices, but Kim heard. She said, wait a minute. She gets out of the car, steps up on the curb, and there stood a veteran standing there. He began to cry uncontrollably, dropped his head. She took her little hands, and she put them on his face and lifted them up. What is it you need to say? He said, I'm the one. I was in that aircraft that day. I'm the reason that you were burned. He didn't even ask for forgiveness. And she looked at him and she put her hands around his face. And she came within inches of his face. And she said, I forgave you a long time ago. It's time you let it go too. What about you today? I'm betting there's no one in here that's been in prison for 27 years for nothing. Or have had 75% of your body burned to a crisp when you were a child and yet still have the ability to forgive. Or maybe there's even one more that I should tell you about. 2,000 years ago, there was a man who was perfect. And his name was Jesus. And as he hung on the cross... Not because he did anything wrong, but because of your sin and because of my sin. I want you to look and stare a hole through that picture. As he bled, he bled for you. As he died, he died for you. He didn't just die for your sin. He died as it. He became your sin that you would be made the righteousness of God through Christ. And as he hung on the cross, you and I, we weren't there in physical person, but we might as well be in the centurion soldier. 
As they mocked him, as they spat upon him, as the one on the left, if you be the Christ, the Son of God, save yourself and us also. All of the things that went on as they mocked him. Jesus declared one of the seven things from the cross, one of the most incredibly theological, profound speakings from the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness on the cross, not just for them, but for me and for you. I believe when God looks down from heaven, he sees forgiveness or the lack thereof. Unforgiveness he sees as a childish proposition. How can I ever forgive him, Mark, for what he did to me when I was a little girl? You may not be able to on your own. But you can give that burden over to God today. And he'll take it from you. He'll make you whole. And by giving it to him, you're saying, I forgive. Maybe you are the perpetrator. And God's already forgiven you, but you can't forgive yourself. My friend, don't you put yourself in that position. You're not that great. God is great, and He is amazing, and He is awesome, and He's already forgiven you, and He died for it. Does it mean reconciliation with the perpetrator? But it does mean that you're choosing to live life past it. To be who God created you to be. I think it's time we grow up. To serve. To not be judgmental. To not be lazy, but be anxious for what God has for us. Urgent. And to forgive the way He has forgiven us. With every head bowed. And every eye closed. How many of you could say, Mark, I I need to put away one or more of those three things you gave me. Just to see your hand go up to God today. I want you to lift it right now. That's me. I need to do one or three, two of those things. Hold it up. Hold it up. Let God see your hand. You're taking a step by showing Him your hand. It's deliberate. It's intentional. You can put your hands down. God will grant that today if you'll let Him. How many of you can say, Mark, I know that I know that I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. I may not be perfect. I may let some things go, but I'm a child of God. Hold your hands up. Hold it up high. Hold it up high. Some hands have not gone up. You can put your hands down. The urgency today. Quit judging yourself. It's not time to be lazy. And it's time to let God forgive you. You can pray with me a prayer of faith from your heart to God today. Nothing magical about this prayer. But it's a prayer that I prayed October 29th, 1991. And He forgave me. And I've never gotten over it. He saved me. He redeemed me. Prayed it in faith. And by His grace, through His love and mercy, He redeemed me. He's already bought me back. You just got to accept it today. To as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become a son of God. Even to those who believed upon His name. Pray with me from your heart to God. Something like this. Just pray it to God. Father in heaven, I'm a sinner. I have indeed failed you. God, I'm undone. But I'm asking you, Jesus, to forgive me of all my sin. Jesus, save me. Help me to live for you until the day you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray.